to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. And though I'm not a big fan of uh, self-promotion, I was listening to um, the podcast of today's guest earlier, and they did a very adroit form of uh, self of, of asking for some for some help, which is required for us in podcast land. And so, if uh, if you dig the show, please consider rating it on iTunes, which remains the uh, main way that most people listen to these things, uh, and also know that the archive of the show is available on prn.fm, uh, uh, as well as my own technosis.com uh, website, uh, which is linked to a lot of other uh, articles and talks that I've given. So now that we're done with that, we can move on. Uh, our guest today is uh, Mark Kate, who I first met when he interviewed me for another podcast that he uh, does called Why We Listen, which was a yeah, a fast, it's a fascinating exploration in, uh, you know, people's tastes and what moves them and why they pick out certain tracks when asked by podcasters to do so and trying to figure out, you know, it's a fascinating uh, exploration of, uh, of music and, and meaning. And uh, he's also an electronic musician, makes some very, very beautiful uh, you have to call it ambient music, but it's um, it's got a, a an edge that he adds both uh, in terms of the the sound quality and the um, sort of spirit of the operation, and and he kind of works in sort of a non uh, almost an anti new age ambient zone that can also sound like uh, quite peaceful and sublime music. So it's part of that aesthetic that he's uh, exploring in a more overt way. Uh, with his latest recording, which came out in September, called Deface. Uh, and for this uh, striking act of ambient politics, uh, Mark went through uh, and spent a, a, an undoubtedly somewhat gruesome period of time listening hard and long to uh, national socialist black metal, i.e. fascist Nazi black metal, and extracting from this music uh, of hate, this aesthetics of, of hate and intransigent sovereignty, um, musical material that then he morphs and mutates in a plunderphonic fashion into these uh, glacially gorgeous uh, ambient drones of, of mourning and, and loss that appear on his record Deface. We'll be hearing a track uh, from that a little bit uh, later. The, the sort of brilliance of this move alone inspired me to uh, get him onto the podcast. Um, but in addition to that, uh, he's also, he has his own podcast called Scary uh, Thoughts, which he um, uh, does with a partner in crime whose name is eluding me at the moment. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's about horror, and I've been thinking more and more about horror of late, so I thought uh, it's it's perfect timing to bring Mark on the show. So, Mark, welcome to Expanding Mind. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great. Well, I I want to hear what it was like uh, to do this uh, this sort of research work on on Deface. I mean, I know you know just from previous conversations that you, you've spent a lot of time listening to metal in a in a wide range of 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 the subgenres, but also for a number of different reasons, including your own interest in in nihilism, in horror, in 
you know, uh, aesthetics of timbre, of, of sound worlds. Uh, you had a lot of reasons to listen to that. And what kind of led you to this um, ingenious transformation of some of the world's most hateful music. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the thing about doing that research, spending all that time uh, researching this music and and listening to it, um, is that, of course, you know, it's all just one Google search away, right? It's not. It's not like I was dust you know, going to dark libraries and dusting off old aging scrolls to get this information. It's just. It's all right there. Um, as are a lot of really horrifying things about the world at this point. They're all right there at our fingertips. Um, uh, the difference, of course, is to actually spend a lot of time immersed in them. I think that what really got it started for me was thinking about alt right meme, <laughs> the meme wars, um, these strategies that used to sort of belong to the left have been appropriated by the extreme right. And it has been really, I don't know, frazzling so many people on the left to have these, these techniques, these aesthetic strategies turned against them. Uh, you know, I, when I think it just in music, you brought up plunder phonics. Um, that was a way of sort of undermining the music industry, for example. Um, and those techniques are now being used to sort of like uh, undermine social justice causes, right? Um, and so I was thinking about how to use those sort of strategies in a more traditional sense, um, in line with like John Oswald, Bob Ostertag, artists who recontextualize music. I was also thinking about the Chopped and Screwed movements. Um, I don't know, like Steve Reich's It's Gonna Rain or John Hartfelt's, you know, political photo collages. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of history behind how I came to to make this piece in the first place well but it's interesting to the the part of you what you were responding to is a is a need a, a, is a, a a questioning on many from among many people on the left who and from from the earlier versions of counterculture uh this kind of shock at at, at how rapidly and strongly and quite frankly sometimes quite creatively and ingeniously um, the the alt right have appropriated these tools, which were generally associated um, with the left, with uh, a anarchism, with uh, movements based on on kind of a great negative towards the the status quo. Um, and since they, in a way, have their own version of that of that negative, it kind of makes sense. But it it happened with such speed and with such intensity, and it was because it was able to be distributed through the through the internet and take advantage of the internet's own kind of meme ecology uh, in a way that these previous movements, which were tended to be coming in earlier phases, more analog phases of, of cultural politics, uh, didn't even have quite that, that uh, availability. And so it's almost like, what do we do? I mean, like, how do you respond to that? So it, it seems to me that one of one way of looking at, at deface is your, as an experimental approach to, uh, you know, deterring the deternment, you know, like to like to flip yes. it on its head yet again, but in a different in a different way with a different emotional uh, register. Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, although this is to a degree political work, it's not as 
activist, let's say, as what's happening, shall we say, on the street, um, or even in meme culture, really. Um, you know, I'm just sort of mirroring a, a tradition of approaching content uh, that's been going on for a long time. And it's not even so much that like, oh, the right stole, the extreme right stole these strategies from us. I think there's a little bit of that. What's more important is we've lost our ability to play these strategies somehow. We've become, we people on, I'll just say the left, um, or people who are not on the extreme right have sort of lost a sense of humor, a, a sense of play, uh, a sense of freedom to recontextualize and destroy um, because we're so wrapped up in being careful and being precious. And that's why this um, this art battle is so lopsided, right? It's true. No, those, that's a very good point. I mean, that's, it, it wouldn't be as unbalanced as it, as it is if there weren't some real problems on the left that this that this kind of approach is 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 playing off of and including this this kind of sense of of preciousness and perfection and a kind of carefulness and a kind of uh hesitancy a sort of uh you know for, especially from if you're if you're on the more anarchist side of the left it's some of it is just very uh you know kind of um aggressively uh, sort of uh, conservative in a weird sense. So there's a kind of conservatism in a lot of positions and the way in which they get articulated and the way in which they are uh, distributed, way in which they're discussed, the way in which they're held, uh, that for, and it's, it's, I, I can't put my finger on why it happened, but this kind of seriousness became more and more um, the, the mainstream of a lot of progressive positions. Yes. And in a way it was kind of like a, a you know, the, 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 the side, the flank was exposed. It's like the Achilles heel was grew larger and larger and easier to hit with more and more sophomoric targets or, you know, approaches would be able to, uh, to worm their way in. And, and so do you, are, are you seeing along with, you know, to, to, to look at DeFace as part of a process of talking back to that situation? Um, but do you see other things uh, that are happening that people are doing? You see some ways in which uh, the, the balance, the, 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 the imbalance is being addressed these days. I'm not. Um, and not not in some way of saying that I'm the only one doing this. I'm just not especially seeing it. Um, it still does seem particularly one-sided that, um, I mean, even in this conversation, uh, regardless of what topics we're going to hit in the next 50 minutes, um, you and I are probably the type of people who are going to be fairly careful about how we phrase things lest we make some sort of political transgressions either against our own ideas or against ideas with which we align ourselves. Um, and that is so very, very different from the Kekistan nihilist, throw everything at the wall and don't care what sticks just as long as it's dismantling, right? Um, and I think that's the core of how very lopsided this is. Um, and it's true. It's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I've been wrestling a lot of, of it, having done some of my recent research on uh, discordianism and the kind of anarchist prankster current within the 60s counterculture, which you know, could could appear both in leftist guises and then more anarchist 
um, kind of, you know, utopian prankster guises. But going back and looking at it from with contemporary eyes, it's so clear the way that so many of these gestures are now, you know, alive uh, on the right in a way that they're not uh, in, in the left. And just seeing how that evolved and, and devolved and shifted and changed it. I mean, it's really kind of a remarkable story about, you know, how discourse is organized, how affect is organized, how we take care, how we make gestures of taking care. Um, it's a, I mean, it's a very complicated, uh, complicated issue. And you, you decided to do it with, with a certain affective transformation in a way like, like you could say, oh yeah, he took, he took Nazi black metal tracks and, and mutated the music. Isn't that subversive? Isn't that, that fun or whatever, but you took them in a certain direction, which is, uh, you know, your, your music is like a lot of, uh, of ambient music, but in particular, even compared to a lot of stuff that I, I listen to and enjoy has a very powerful affective dimension to it. You're definitely playing with the connection between texture and timbre and emotion. Uh, and particularly longing, mourning, a uh, sort of uh, glacial awe. There's these very powerful kinds of uh, emotional charges in there. And I don't know whether you think about your music this way, because it's often the case that listeners think about music much differently than their than the composers. But it does seem that like part of the alchemy you were doing in transforming this this hateful lead was to bring it into a certain emotional register. And I, I'm wondering what was what that was about. Yeah, well, actually, that's exactly how I think about it. Um, I feel like we are in mourning. We've lost a lot. And I don't, again, I'm this time I'm using we not as some sort of like leftist gesture, but we like uh, this country, our people, this planet, we're losing, we're losing. There's this loss. It's not even... Uh, necessarily a political statement to say so. Um, we um, are losing ground. We are losing our gains. Um, this sort of collective project that we are, one would hope, all embarked on um, is losing ground, or at least our idea of that we're all in this together is, uh, is one of loss. And I mean, that sort of dovetails with a lot of work that I've been doing outside of this project in particular, which is really examining nihilism and f believing and seeing that we are globally in an incredibly nihilist stage in human history, right? Um, you know, whether we're talking about the um, burn it all down Donald Trump voting or extreme uh, extreme Islamic terrorists, suicide bombers, or, I mean, it's just, these things are all just sort of like, or, or like the walking dead apocalypse narratives. This is all sort of, we can better view. I, and it's that capitalist realism Zizek thing of like, we can more easily see the end of the world than we can see an anti-capitalism, right? The, there, there are these struggles that we can't even conceive of being over. Um, and so we just want to start from scratch somehow. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, since you, I mean, you brought, you know, you brought that up. I want, I wanted to talk about, um, uh, nihilism. It's something that's a, a theme in, in your, in your conversations and, and in your, in your music. And it relates to this, you know, uh, issue. I mean, how, 
how have you come to think about working with it? Because it's like, on the one hand, clearly nihilism is ascendant, and there's many good reasons for it, if we, if we actually need reasons, uh, you know, or just thinking about the environment alone and what kind of calamities coming, are coming down the pike and our incapacity to even begin to really deal with it. Um, and the sense of loss that is attendant with the loss of species and the, the kind of dominant, just, just in that zone alone, let alone leaving aside many of the other uh, domains of it, you know, there's like, you have good reason for despair, or you have one has good reason to give up hope. Um, and so on the one hand, there are good reasons for this, and in, and even more so, it's clearly a, a flame. You know, it's it's burning through cultures and and technologies and media. It's like nihilism is is everywhere if, if you if you tune into it. But at the same time, to kind of really confront nihilism, really engage it, really recognize it, really you know bringing yourself into dialogue in it doesn't just mean to become to give into at least some aspects of nihilism. So there's still a kind of wrestling with it uh, that I, that I hear you trying to, to work with. Um, yes. and, I, it, and so, yeah, how, to, how does that work? And maybe, and maybe even how does deface kind of show one way of, of approaching or playing with these issues? Yeah. I mean, I think that I've approached these ideas around nihilism and this, album deface very similarly where i'm considering something that needs uh resistance from and in, in investigating it in researching it and seeing what i can extract from it um and create some sort of opposition um i, I am deeply freaked out by the degree of nihilism i see in the world and my way of reacting to it is to research it uh, learn as much about nihilism as I can, not just not just on a surface burn it all down way, but actually reading books by like Ligotti and Lovecraft and and Chiron and writers who have really gone the distance um, with nihilism and similarly with National Socialist Black Metal. So who are these people that are so deeply invested in creating? I mean, black metal is already uh, a genre that is immersed in hate. You know, the the darkest aspect of um, satanic practices, uh, the most uh, cancerous end of occult studies. Um, and so where do we go when we look to the extreme of that extreme, which are these, um, you know, Nazi anti-Semitic um, uh, artists that are creating music that are overtly or covertly celebrating just the worst aspects of humanity. Um, and what can I do with that? And so creating something beautiful and again, you know, dolorous, um, because I think there is a sense of loss. I wanted to create some sort something that was beautiful, but also something that is almost like a requiem. Um, uh, I didn't want to be too hokey about it and take all this national socialist black metal and then create this like sparkling early eighties meditation, new age, um, but rather express not its opposite, but what I'm genuinely, uh, feeling in reaction to it. Yeah. I mean, in a way that's a, that's a, a more challenging, but more, uh, profound kind of alchemy because, uh, to to simply ironize or to simply subvert at this point 
is really to participate in the culture of cheap nihilism that in some ways you're reacting against. And yeah. so there's a vulnerability that's required of just being like, these are like real feelings and I'm feeling them for real reasons. And these reasons are not just my personal story. It has to do with where we are and an and honest look at the, uh, the, the engagement with the situation. And, and it, it comes out of a, a real feeling. But, but also we, what you also mentioned, and this is something that's it's really been in my head a lot of how to wrestle with, with the nihilism that I feel with when I'm, when I encounter it in the world, when I'm encountering the reasons for that nihilism, whether they're cultural reasons or specific, you know, concrete factual uh, situations is that that spirit of, uh, of curiosity, investigation and research is really, really, really important. It, it, there's a, there's a magic and a ballast in just trying to understand. And I've spent a lot of the time, I'd like, like you, and part of the reason I was interested in your project is just, um, you know, over the last year and a half, uh, and having already spent a lot of time interested in certain right-wing phenomena and definitely black, you know, black metal stuff. And I was already tuned into some of the ways that um, countercultural music has been appropriated for you know, uh, sort of nationalist causes and whatever, but more recently, really trying to understand what's going on, like really trying to understand where people are coming from, at the very least, so that I am no longer surprised. And the, the, the mark of it's not I'm no longer surprised because I'm dulled to whatever the gestures that the right makes or the degree of hatefulness or nastiness that you see online or whatever. So it's not about getting inured to it. It's being able to actually understand it well enough that you can kind of almost appreciate it, not in the positive sense of, of, uh, of, of you know, of lionizing it, but appreciating like, oh, I pre, okay. Oh, I sense. Oh, okay. I can get where that's coming from, even if I completely reject it. And that, that mind frame seems to me very rare these days and yes. very, very for my mind is absolutely required because otherwise I, I just feel lost. <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, to, to bring up the, the echo chamber effect that so many of us are lost in due to social media, I feel very strongly this impulse to do the opposite, to go the opposite way to, uh, not only flee Facebook, but also to, immerse myself in what is scaring me the most about the world rather than just have my own viewpoint and positions reaffirmed on a daily basis, um, have them challenged, um, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of going into these texts of nihilism and, and the extreme right, not as something purely to, um, you know, deturn or to alter, but to understand. And that is, huh, I, I mean, I say this ironically, I, I, it's almost like I want to do something heroic with that gesture. Um, take, take a hero's journey into the, you know, this dark abyss and be able to come back with something useful. Right. All that, you know, but I don't, I don't want to frame it that way too elaborately because really I'm just sitting around reading books and, and making, <laughs> and, and, and making pretty music. Right. Yeah, but it's it's still there is there is something epic about it. I mean, I I've I've gone a, on a similar path. I mean, I I I've, I take uh, pessimism f philosophically very seriously. I I always have. 
Um, I'm, I've never, I've almost by nature, I don't go there. Um, but not out of, uh, uh, you know, a strong sense of conviction in opposed to a lot of pessimist positions. I find a lot of them extremely persuasive. Uh, and I've, I've had the op opportunity of knowing people who really inhabit that world, people like Eugene Thacker, you know, well enough to get a sense of what it's like to really like walk the talk. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's just not my story. I just, it's not what comes, what comes up for me. Although the older I get and the more I think um, in my own terms, the more I realize that, that, that those issues are, are completely enmeshed with whatever the more positive or hopeful or, or loving or religious or whatever aspects of my, of myself that are also operative, that it, it's more and more clear to me that to be alive and awake and, and hopeful and still connecting with people and still in love with, with the, with reality or nature or whatever, that to do that adequately these days, it's, it's almost like you have to also have a relationship with the pit or the abyss or what, I mean, that you can't get one without, without the other. It's totally false. Uh, and so there is something I think big about these, these gestures, especially at a time when it's so easy to either go into distraction and, you know, smoke weed and watch Netflix, which of course you do anyway, but it sounds so uh, good. Yeah. You know, or, or the filter bubbles where you're around a lot of people who are righteous and agree with you and you're, and you feel the power of that connection and, you know, oh yeah, we go, oh, yeah, we've got another, this is our idea. Yay. You know, whatever. When and there's, a, when there's a win or something. And that's another kind of like, it's like a sports kind of approach to, to political subjectivity. And, um, yeah, it doesn't really, it doesn't really do it for me either. So, you know, I, I think there is something to be said for diving into some of these difficult waters and trying to, to figure stuff out. So here's a, here's a concrete question. What did you figure out? What did you learn about, you know, Nazi black metal, national socialist black metal after having gone through this, this research period and, 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 and selecting tracks and trying to drill down into what the affect is and then how to transform that with, watching your own reactions. What was that journey like for you as a listener, as somebody who likes metal as a genre, as someone who's invested in these political issues? I feel like I came away with a lot. I mean, one thing that I think is really interesting is that in this conversation about nihilism and looking at these, uh, these issues through a lens of nihilism, I think that uh, truly National Socialist Black Metal is in a way not nihilist. It is people who are often not all not all of these artists, but um, actively articulating their vision of a better world. It's a horrible world, but um, there is that sort of vision somewhere in it. Um, and I think that's why there is this conservative politic in it. Um, is trying to figure out where the issues are, you know, with anti-Semitism and racism and homophobia and all these things and sort of generate what their vision of the best world is. But another thing that I think is really interesting is while that's true, you know, earlier we were talking about uh, call-out culture and being very precious about words and, and uh, being careful how you signal your own politics, um, a lot of national socialist black metal is not necessarily 
trademark stamped as such, right? Uh, there are some bands that are overtly so, but then a lot of there's an awful lot of uh, what would the expression be dog whistle blowing. Um, there's a lot of lyrics that just sort of hint at the Third Reich or um, Aryan history or something like that and um, secret affiliations that a band member has. So there's this very elaborate matrix where there's not national socialist black metal and other kinds of metal. It's more that like, well, so-and-so was part of this band when they were this old and now they're in this band, does that make, does that, does that transfer some sort of toxicity to this new project where that's a racist band too that we have to object to? Um, but what's also, I think, interesting is the roots of almost all of black metal have, I mean, they're pretty terrible. They're pretty rotted. Um, so it's really easy to maybe just dismiss the whole thing, right? Um, the whole, the whole genre is pretty poison, uh, but it's fascinating poison. And I think for me as a listener, um, and I'm not a metal guy. Like I, I grew up on like post-punk and new wave and synthesizer music and my interest in metal came far later. So there's, there's a bit of a poser. There's a bit of a, uh, a tourist tourism in this for me. Um, but I'm really fascinated by black metal, but it's really hard to listen to sometimes, you know, the, to be specific, um, I don't know. Maybe most listeners wouldn't know the artist Burzum, but um, the uh, it's a solo project, and he went to prison for murder. He's an overt Nazi. He just made a role-playing game about the Fourth Reich or something like that. Uh, he's a he's a deplorable human being. But his first couple of albums are sorry, they're masterpieces, and it's really hard to listen to, and it's really hard to completely dismiss musically as well. And that's where these conversations get really dicey, right? How do you separate the artist and their intentions from this music? Because those uh, those politics aren't in the music, it's in the person. Um, so what do you do with the art of some deplorable human being? Yeah, it's funny, it's funny you should bring that because a, a friend of mine actually bought me a, 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 a Burzum on, on LP when they had a reissue of the second record and I, uh, and I, he gave it to me and I was like, I'm like, I was like, uh, thank you. I mean, I'm definitely going to keep this cause now like I have it and it's like too cool to like put away, but I don't know. I don't think you knew what you got me. Right. And he's like, no. And I go, 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 go do a little research. And he just like wrote back like, Oh my God. And you know, and then, I, and then, so I, here's a, here's like a way of, of being, this is kind of a vulnerable version of the question, maybe a, a arguably dangerously naive version, which is that I have to acknowledge that part of my part, not the main tone by any means, but part of my enjoyment of certain kinds of metal is that I'm in proximity to something that I feel is authentically bad or evil to use like a charged term that I don't really mean, but like something that's, that's poison or toxic, whatever the words you, you're saying, that it's not just a pose. If it was all just a pose, uh, you know, it's fun. It could be fun, but you know, I'm not that interested in it. So like Venom, I love Venom. They're great, but it's easy because they're just, they just, you know, they were fucking around. They were really more punk rockers anyway, blah, blah, blah. So I'll, they'll throw a little Satan in there. No problem. It sounds ugly. I love it. But the fact that some of it out there and you're not really sure what it is and that's part of the game 
is authentic, whatever that means, whether authentically satanic or in this case, authentically right, you know, right wing, that there's something about that that's part of the pleasure of the music, even at the same time in which I find it as a politics reprehensible. And I don't know what to do with that. I feel that, you know, when people talk about guilty pleasures with music, you know, it's mostly they don't, it, it's something that's not, there's no reason to have guilt about it at all because nobody really cares. <laughs> oh, I, I love, you know, Donnie and Marie. And you're like, yeah, whatever. I, you know, I love cans, <laughs> you know, whatever. Sure. That's a guilty pleasure because it's, I guess it's cheesy, but there's so much recuperation of cheesy music. Well, it's like, I actually have a real guilty pleasure, which is that Burzum record. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and but I think there's something in that attitude that's not just I don't know that's not just sort of the dangers of not you know the kind of delectable dangers of, of nihilism or evil or something that is actually can be a portal to to again to understanding something to understanding a world that has values that you also totally reject but has values it's not just a a gest an empty gesture you know and that's partly what you were talking about about the way in which national socialist black metal is not just nihilist because they have values. And this is a question I ask now, I'm curious how you say it. I'm sorry, I kind of, you know, this is an inspiring conversation, is that I'm not sure anymore whether I prefer people who essentially don't really have values that are just sort of riding along the postmodern, multicultural, consumer hedonist with a little bit of environmentalism worldview without actually really engaging values who are essentially kind of hedonic nihilists, even if they're not really thinking that way. And there's a lot of people like that, a lot of people like that, or people who really have values that I don't accept. And I don't even know anymore which of those is helping? I, I, I can't tell anymore. I mean, it's so confusing for me in terms of how values motivate action. Uh, and, and so you get, you know, the, these questions come up when you start dealing with this kind of material. Like, geez, these people, there really are values here. And yet I can even see why they might be held and why they would be appealing to people at this sort of moment in history, even as I fundamentally reject them. Ah, oh, it's just... I'm just, <laughs> you got me stirred up. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, you know, it, I think this crosses over into, um, for me, what's very important about my uh, horror film podcast, Scary Thoughts, is, um, so dialing way back from Nazis, let's like, um, my, uh, my co-host, uh, Chad Lott, so this is, you know, the, the horror podcast is a, a co-production. Um, he and I politically don't align at all. And for me, I mean, we're both totally invested in horror, especially horror films. And, you know, he went to UC Berkeley, so we've got a lot of sort of cultural intersection. But he's almost so far on the right that we have a pretty good understanding of each other. Um, and I feel like that podcast is less about horror for me as a practice than about actually spending time with someone with whom I totally disagree on a lot of fundamentals about the world. Um, that again, part of this echo chamber that is so easy to, uh, just rattle around in endlessly. Um, it's far more interesting for me to, um, 
have regular conversations with someone who's totally into guns, right? <laughs> but but we have a sense of humor about our difference, and that's really precious to me, is being able to actually sit down with someone and disagree and not, it not result in screaming <laughs> and argument that, um, that I have really learned to see I wouldn't say the extreme other side in a sympathetic way, uh, the way I have with, you know, national socialism, but at least in this very traditional American way that, yeah, uh, that makes we're so, we, you know, it, to, to say the most obvious thing that's always in the news and being discussed in every op-ed, you know, the, the degree to which this country is incredibly polarized at the moment is not very interesting to me. I certainly believe in what I believe in, but... Uh, I'd actually rather have a conversation, you know? Yeah, I'm totally like you. I feel extremely alienated for our, our moment for that reason is that like the, my whole shtick since I was a young writer was, uh, it was about really trying to kind of empathize with where people were coming from. And, and once I sort of embarked on that, I realized that it's more interesting the more different you are from the people you're trying to empathize with. And so I was drawn to, you know, I, I did a lot of research on conservative Christianity. I know a lot about, about fundamentalism. I've talked to people I've, you know, engaged. I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm excited when the opportunity arises, you know, it's not part of my normal uh, daily life, but when I'm able to talk to people who are deeply religious, which tends to be the, 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 the zone that I became most familiar with, um, you know, I was, I, I really enjoyed that. And I, and I have a lot of these kind of diplomacy skills. I have a lot of ability to kind of be in the midst of uh, these sort of Im ambiguous negotiations around where people's axioms are and whether or not that's okay and how we're going to, you know, have a conversation or not. Uh, and I just, it's so, there's so little of it. It's just, you know, it's, it's really depressing. Sometimes I think I should take this show and just devote it to talking to people uh, on the right, because I have the capacity to do that in, in yeah. a lot of ways. And just to have those kind, even if they're frustrating and sometimes dangerous and I get hate mail from the left or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, that it still would be a, a better kind of um, contribution to just the possibility of a less polarized and like you say, boringly polarized situation yes. where you're like, this is just it's just dull. Uh, so I'm, 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 I, I hadn't actually realized that aspect of the scary thoughts things because it's a little bit, it's not always that overt, right. uh, but I, that's a, you're, you're lucky. It's a good, that's a great opportunity <laughs> to be able oh, to, totally. you know, to work within that, within that zone. Totally. I think you should totally engage with that. I mean, I think to, to point out an obvious example, I think that's like Joe Rogan's superpower is that he's able to have these crazy people on and just talk to them and just see what they're about without getting too, too hung up on, on difference. It's funny. Something you just said, um, reminded me of another aspect of doing all this research, uh, how it affected me is that, um, I remember some time ago you had mentioned that you were researching, like, was it Christian psych music or something like that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, when you said that my knee jerk internal reaction was, why, why would you want to do that? That just sounds terrible. But then I probably went home and listened to Dark Funeral, which is like 
even further away from any sort of like personal feelings and ideology I genuinely have, you know. Um, that was something I really realized, like I would never listen to Christian music, even though at core, I probably align more with Judeo-Christian values than some sort of overt Satanism, which constitutes a degree of my listening time, right? So what is it in me, and probably not just me, that is more likely to acclimate to, let's say, Satanism, than to Christianity. What is that opposition that I'm trying to create uh, in myself against the the sort of what I view as like the dominant message and somehow give a pass to this other thing that is preaching so-called evil, right? <laughs> it's really seductive. I don't know. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, I really, I, I you know, whatever, I'm always fantasizing about other projects I could do. And and uh, I, I fantasize about doing like a, a an actual radio show, like terrestrial radio. I'm not that interested in the in pod, you know podcasting music, uh, but at, you know doing just sacred music. And, and then I all, but I always imagine these marvelous juxtapositions where I take like you know a satanic metal songs that I really love, and I love partly because they are religious in this broad sense. I mean, this kind of nihilist religion, but there is a religious element there. There's there's devotional songs to Satan, and like, and I, I love that. And then putting that, and then playing a Christian tune right next, and going like, yeah, actually, I can really enjoy both of these these sentiments because I'm really interested in religious affect. I'm really interested in the kind of intensity that people bring, even the sentimentality that people bring. Like a a cheesy pop song that's a cheesy secular pop song to me isn't very interesting, but if it's a Christian, I'm like a little, I'm almost often a little more interested, particularly if I have a sense that they're really going for it. You know, not the big uh, glossy commercial stuff but like some private press record from 1975 that's deeply sentimental it's like it's someone's you know there's an earnestness to it that's really powerful uh, uh again in that slightly perverse way but it's also a way of resonating because you start to resonate with other people's values and even if their values are not your own you kind of learning in a weird way about how people construct the world and it gives you more sympathy for more kinds of people um, and it's a, so it's a, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, practice, but I realize we're babbling away. We have, I want to, I want to hear, let, and let people hear one of the tracks on your album. So, oh, great. uh, we just have a, a short selection from, uh, from DeFace. I think that the, this is from DeFace five. Uh, and then you can check out the, the whole record on, on Bandcamp on, on Mark Kate's, uh, page there. So, uh, let's, let's listen, let's listen to the track. So, Mark, what uh, what what what's what was the original source there for to Phase Five? Are you willing to uh, name names? <laughs> you know, I'm not. I thought about that, and um, <laughs> I think I think again. You know, this music is a Google search away. I don't need to 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 give publicity to these awful awful people and their music. Um, you know, and but I will say just outright. Uh, you know, I didn't pay for any of any of the music that I that I altered. I just I just couldn't 
couldn't bring myself, you know, like your friend bought you that Burzum record and what a dollar of your friend's money probably went straight into his pocket, right? Um, I don't want to contribute to that economy, even if I am spending time uh, uh, immersed in that culture. Well, I and this this track also, you know, it, it reminds me in, in, in your your other music as well. You know, when I first heard, uh, I think the first record I heard was Despairer. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I also love a lot of... Uh, you know, early new age music for kind of similar reasons. Again, I'm interested in all these kind of spiritual affect and how people think about religion and stuff. So I, I listen to a lot of new age music. Um, again, I tried, you know, I, I draw probably typically hipster lines between like kind of commercial cheese and more sort of authentic early uh, golden age kind of stuff. Although there's some exceptions to that as well. And I was really interested in your music because when I listened to it, I was like, look, if I don't know any of the context, if I didn't know Mark or the name of it or whatever, I would listen to it as a kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it new age, but a kind of ambient music that is infused with sort of similar sorts of values. Although it was, there was always a little difference there that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And then talking to you about it, you know, you had, a, you have a very robust way of talking about ambient music and talking about this, these kind of spiritual drones or whatever, but from a very different perspective, almost a cantankerous anti-new age position. Um, <laughs> and and, and I, I wanted to, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit just about that in general, because it sort of runs through a lot of your music. It's very beautiful. It's very uh, uh, calming. It's kind of sobering, but it's also a little edgy and kind of in ways that are hard to put my finger on. So why this kind of music um, uh, and, and, and why sort of try to bring these other, these, these other at attitudes and ideas into music that superficially might sound uh, like things you, you don't want it to evoke? Right. Um, I mean, I think, I think it comes back to, yeah, I went to art school uh, and was really uh, immersed in strategies of conceptual art where the idea had primacy. And that's really how I sort of emerged as an artist before I rolled up my sleeves and, and started making music. And I think that's really informed uh, almost everything I've done musically is the idea comes first. You know, uh, almost everything I've recorded for the last 10 years, maybe I probably started with essay writing just to myself, you know, like what, what am I trying to do here? And then try to apply those ideas, uh, to synthesizers and, uh, timbres in particular, which is mostly why I do such droning music is I really like to slowly explore timbre possibilities with synthesis. Um, trying to find new sounds which is probably impossible at this point i think i think we've i think the human ear has probably heard every sound it will ever hear we've already crossed that threshold somehow um but at least trying trying to poke at the edges of of new ways of evoking ideas and feelings through sound and as far as new age is concerned i mean i find it super fascinating all music has a function uh, whether we want to think of it that way or not, all music is functional. And I find a lot of new age at least has the audacity to put that up front, that it is perhaps for meditation or for maybe not the early stuff. So it wasn't so flagrant, but um, 
you know, for meditation, for massage, uh, for relaxation, um, to help induce states for, um, for your personal practices. And I really like the idea of functional music in that way, <clears throat> but music doesn't function for me that way. So how could I create new age music uh, in a certain sense that isn't about spirituality um, because that's not my relationship to music. So what about a new age ish music that is materialist, that is realist, um, that is not about uh, some sort of meditation or at its worst escape, but is about here and now, um, that is uh, meditation in and of itself. And that tends, I mean, to me, tends to be a little dark maybe. And I think the music comes out a little dark as a result of that. Yeah, but it's, but it's again, I mean, it's sort of like also the conversation about timbre. I mean, if you, if you think about timbre of the, you know, the texture of sounds um, as being, it, it, I mean, in a way, like our metaphors for it, our sense of it is, are very material. Like they, 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 I, the more you focus in terms of timbre, I, I believe, the more you're like really sort of dealing with the actual, like, I mean, you're literally dealing with the physics and the overtones that are constituting any given timbre, but it also has a kind of textural invitation to it. Um, and so for me, a lot of these musics are also very material, even if they want to be directing themselves to escapist other worlds. Yes. Um, and so to me, that makes a, that makes a lot of sense. But it also has to do with the role of, of emotion in music and what in our current situation, you know, in a situation where we are living with nihilism, we are living with horror, horrors in the in our news feed. Are, are we? I mean, I don't know about you, but I suspect you're like me, and like is that I often have a, a new kind of nameless dread that I never experienced <laughs> before. Even though I was always a sort of dark cookie, I always went to the shadow. I was a Lovecraft reader from you know ten years old and whatever. So I've I've always had a, a relationship with the nightmares and the the, the anxi anxiety and dread. But the quality of dread that, that our contemporary situation can deliver now is really quite something. And how do we navigate that? How does how does can can music and art help us like move through it, not to cure it, but not to ignore it, but to give it almost more resonance or to to I don't it's it's, it's it seems to be part of what we're trying to do. Part of what you're trying to do too is 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 to work through these very real feelings in in aesthetic terms with that doesn't involve running away from them. Yeah. I, God, I wish we could come up with better, newer terms to describe this moment we're having. Uh, one thing that is actually really kind of exciting to me about this discussion of new age and, and all that is actually my very most recent album, uh, that just came out on the label dragon's eye, um, is titled as if we were never here, which is sort of a further extension of, um, this sort of idea of paranihilism. I don't know how to call it. Um, but uh, that label Dragon's Eye was originally conceived long, long ago by a baker who wanted to include a flexi disc of George Winston's music to accompany his bread recipes in a book and started a label. Um, so I sort of get to tap into this legacy of George Winston and, and bed break 
bread baking um, as I'm as I'm sort of exploring this non new age terrain, at least in my mind, that's how it's working. <laughs> that's great, man. George Winston. I saw I saw him when I was a, a, a lad. Uh, he played. He played barefoot. <laughs> Beautiful. The best part of it was when the the train passed by, and he started to kind of improvise with the the sounds of the train. That was the, that was about. I went there. <laughs> so uh, and then we got just a few minutes here, but I, I yeah. wanted to talk a little bit more um, about horror. You know, I was I I have a friend was visiting is is visiting right now. I had this conversation this morning. Is is I had this kind of little insight that. For so long, I felt like that the the most important genre for understanding the world, and particularly the kind of you know this rapid speed up of of, of technology um, uh, over the last you know decades, uh, was of course science fiction. But that it does that doesn't really do that much for me anymore. It's like I might as well be reading a a, a book about science and technology, reading the business pages or whatever. Like I don't, it doesn't really work for me that much anymore. Right. Whereas horror, horror seems like that. That horror is not just about some our perennial fascination with the dead, or horror is not just some uh, place like video games where we work out, work off our id or something. That horror, for me, is increasingly at the sort of center of the work we need to do to stay awake to what's actually happening, to stay materialist and awake. Um, and sort of navigate it, like navigate that that space that we're in, not necessarily submit to it, but to not turn away. And, you know, and, and so, you know, you're much more familiar with the discourse of horror than I have. I haven't read a lot into it. Uh, I've just read a lot of the primary sources. Um, how do you see the role of horror and, and especially discourse around horror, talking about horror films, horror books, some of these philosophical positions that are embedded within it. How do you see that as a way of navigating our, our, our current moment? Um, I think it is a really good lens for looking at extremes. Um, uh, as we're in this very extreme time, um, having literature, film, um, music that is able to take these things to their utter extremes. I mean, that's what science fiction ultimately was able to do with the advent of all these, the science and technology, right? Um, but I don't know that where we are in tech right now isn't, hasn't all been covered decades ago by really great science fiction writers. However, the the collective dread that we all have around the world we're suddenly confronted with that we perhaps most of us did not see coming, um, horror is perfect to use as a microscope for how we can cope with that, how we can fail to cope with that. Yeah, it reminds me of the... Uh... You know, we had Donna Haraway on the show uh, about a year and a half ago, and the, the title of her book, Staying with the Trouble. 
making kin in the Cthulhu scene. And she uses this phrase, Cthulhu scene, in a a hilariously kind of unknowing way because she's not aware of what she evoked with that term. And yet it was very appropriate. And I I love it. We we can use it anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, when people talk about the Anthropocene, in my mind, I just translate into the Cthulhu scene and it all makes more sense to me. And and, uh, so the idea there, just in that title alone, is like, one, staying with it you stay with it you you have dread you stay with the dread you have horror you stay with the horror you are aghast at the monstrosity of it you stay with that you don't become inured to it you don't just fall into the patterns of distraction that consumer capitalism is laying for us at every moment you you, as much as you can you try to stay with it and it's like well it's grim or what how are you going to still find you got to find joy somewhere yeah that'll still happen you can still and you have fun and you find joy in the trouble and then Absolutely. there's this idea of making kin, you know, of connecting, of we're still we're still building affective connections with people. It's not just like this sort of solitary, uh, you know, alienation. And that's something I, I disagree with a lot of the ni- like people who are more into nihilism or pessimism is they seem very lonely in a way. And I'm like, I'm not that lo- I mean, I have a lot of friends and I like I'm friends with animals. I'm friends with trees. <laughs> you know, I'm still kind of a hippie yeah. that way. But I'm not, it's not that we're not in this like, in a, you know, Cthulhu dominated environment. So there's something about those, that cluster of ideas that, that it really uh, kind of works, works for me as we. Yeah, I mean, I would never tell someone not to take their meds, but there's something about our uh, capacity for numbing ourselves um, to how intense the world can be. But I, I mean, I think I feel very similar to you. I honestly the the more time i spend with this stuff it's rough it's really hard to take but at the same time my life's great i'm doing okay um and maybe maybe all of this dark research is is a part of that that uh you know that my day to day is not as rough as these dark terrains that uh i'm navigating intellectually right yeah, I think, and I think that's a that's sort of a, a healthy space, and it's also it's the same kind of you know again the same kind of alchemy as the deface record is is like you you're using the raw material that's right there with, with which includes dread which includes the the horror of other people's values and how hateful things can be and you're like yeah well that's part of the material that that we got to work with and so it also it, there's a kind of it's subvers- so kind of I, I like so much about the project. It's subversive and piss taking in one way, and sarcastic in one way. <laughs> but in another way, it's actually really kind of beautiful and and uh, and uh, earn it. You know, it's got it's got a real authentic. Well, it's, I hate the word authenticity, but it's you know you're not just being snarky. Um, right. No, thanks. I mean, the way I kind of think about it is that if you are a neat freak, if you are really obsessed with cleanliness, you spend a lot of time on your hands and knees scrubbing filth, right? If you want a clean house, you have to like put on rubber gloves and get close to the toilet. And uh, I mean, unless you're rich and can hire someone and then my metaphor falls apart. But um, <laughs> you know, at least in terms of how my life goes, like if I want to if I want a clean house, like I got to I got to look at the filth. Well, that's good, man. I think we'll uh, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, once again, we've been talking to Mark Kate about uh, his album Deface and his podcast uh, Scary Thoughts and why we listen. And you can find out more on uh, markkate.com, uh, I believe. 
and uh, so, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you. I'm such a fan of your podcast. It was great to be on. Excellent. All right, folks, until next week, keep your mind open. 